Well, Lord, we thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to participate in your mission and that you even came for us, came for a lost and dying world that did not deserve your love or compassion, but only your just wrath. And yet you showed mercy. And Lord, we're only here because of your mercy. So we are grateful. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you had given this church to to go to places like the Philippines and Turkey and and even in the past to Kenya and, Lord, to um, Honduras and just the many places we've been able to go as a church and send teams. Lord, we just pray that, that we would be effective not only in these places overseas, but even and especially in our own community. And Lord, I pray now as we look to your word that you would um, instill in us a passion for our community, a passion for your son and a a passion, Lord, to proclaim him. Please work in us by your spirit this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I brought this water bottle up here, just as sort of a reminder uh, to us. In fact, you know, NASA, their motto in looking for extraterrestrial life, and you know they have a division that does that, right? Their motto is simply this, follow the water. Now, why is that? Why would they see water as an important thing to consider when looking for life? Because it's essential to life, isn't it? In fact, there are some creatures, some organisms on this planet where over 90% of their weight is water. For human beings, it's about 60%. For older human beings, uh, 75% of uh, infants' weight is water. And so we understand the importance of that, right? Doctors, nutritionists, they will tell us. I see a brother over here drinking some water. Amen, brother. All right. Doctors and nutritionists will tell us that it's not water. Oh, Lamont. Lamont. Doctors and nutritionists will tell us that we should be uh, drinking at least two quarts, if not more, of water each day. Why is that? Again, we we need it, right? Our cells need it to function properly. Our our various organs within our body need it to function well. It lubricates our joints. It it transports oxygen and nutrients all throughout the body. Water is used to, to eliminate and transport toxins out of our body. We need water to maintain and balance our internal body temperature. All these things. And you know, we could go without food for several weeks, but we could barely survive a few days without water. We understand its importance. And whether it's Arrowhead or Evian or Kirkland brand or Burbank Water and Power, whatever the source, we need it to live. And while that is very much true, Jesus talks about in his word another kind of water, a more important water, a water that is vital and that we are in far greater need of. In fact, it is necessary for us. You know, we need this water for our physical bodies, but it's only temporary. The water Jesus talks about in John chapter 4 is a water that addresses the need of our eternal souls. And so we're going to be looking at a very familiar story, the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4 this morning. And the message is entitled, Living Water. Living Water. So please turn with me to John chapter 4. And as, as the story begins, we find Jesus has been ministering with his disciples in the region of Judea. As we get to the text in John chapter 4, verse 1, John begins with these words. 
as he gives us the setting. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Again, John opens up this account, giving us the setting. And he tells us something very interesting. He tells us Jesus comes to find out that the Pharisees have realized that Jesus' ministry in Judea has now exceeded, has become more popular than that of John the Baptist. And notice here it says then that Jesus left. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus knew what would happen, right? As he became more popular, the Pharisees would become more jealous, and that would lead to a confrontation. And that eventually will take place, but Jesus decided it was not going to be at this point in the ministry. It was not God's timetable. That would come later. And so Jesus determines that he's going to go back into the region of Galilee. Now, Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north. Now, this poses a significant problem for these Jews, these Jewish men who were going to be traveling up to Judea, because right between Judea and Galilee is Samaria. Now, time doesn't permit me to go into the history of the conflict between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, but, but basically they have been at odds with one another for several hundred years. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as, as half-breeds, as a mixed race of Jew and Gentile. And again, there's a long history there. But they also saw the Samaritans as having syncretized various pagan religion, pagan practices into the Jewish religion. These racist attitudes were reciprocated by the Samaritans. They did not like the Jews much either. And so these tensions, again, had existed for hundreds of years. And and in Jesus' day, no self-respecting Jew would find himself walking through Samaria. Typically, they would go around either to the east or to the west. And that's because they did not want the, the soil of Samaria to defile their shoes. That was the attitude then. And so this is what makes John's statement in verse 4 very interesting. Where it says there, notice, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why is that? Was he in a hurry? Did he need to take the shortest route? Or was something else going on? Look at verse 5. It says they came to a place called Sukkar. This place is likely in the area of Shechem. And this was a significant piece of real estate because it is in this place where Abraham made an altar. It's in this place where Joseph was buried. This is the place where Jacob also made an altar. This is the place that uh, Jacob's well was located, as the text says. And so this was a revered location. It was a holy site, according to the Samaritans. So much so that they, about 400 years earlier, had built a temple on Mount Gerasim, which was the mountain that was surrounding this region of Shechem. Interestingly enough, you know, they built this site because, one, they weren't really welcome in Jerusalem to worship there, and two, they didn't really want to go there. So they built their own place of worship. Well, about 125 years before Jesus, the Jews actually destroyed that temple. That tells you how how their relationship had been going. Now, as we look back at our story, after traveling more than probably 30 miles, Jesus is extremely tired. 
revealing to us that, yes, Jesus is also man as well as God. And he's very tired. He's very thirsty. And so he, he finds himself, they find themselves in Sukkar right at this well. And this is where things get interesting. Take a look with me at verse 7. While Jesus is there resting, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John says. Let's stop there. Jesus is alone at the well. He's, he's resting. He sent his disciples into town to, to pick up some little Caesars, which, by the way, was the only pizza chain the Romans would allow. Uh, Right? They went into town to get some food. Thank you. I'm glad you got that joke. And as, as Jesus is resting there, this, this woman shows up. Jesus is thirsty. He had nothing to dip into the well in order to draw the water out. And some believe, based on the geography there, there the well could have been even up to 100 feet deep. So Jesus had no way to get a drink. And so he asks this woman who shows up, who has the necessary paraphernalia to get the water, says, give me a drink. Now, to us, this request might not seem like that big of a deal. Again, Jesus is thirsty. He asks this woman for a favor. But again, given the identity of the person that he is speaking to, I cannot overstate how shocking this would have been, particularly to other Jews. In fact, verse 27, the disciples, when they come upon the scene a little bit later, the word there uses, they looked and saw what was going on and they were shocked. They were astonished. Even the woman herself recognized the the cultural dilemma here. As she says in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And again, notice John's parenthetical statement. He says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, by that, he did not mean that they don't interact at all with Samaritans, because, again, the, the disciples were waiting in line at Little Caesar, so they were in a town in Samaria. But what she meant here, what this phrase actually literally means is that, that uh, uh, there would not be, Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Meaning this, that is, the Jews would not drink or eat from a vessel that had been used by a Samaritan because they would consider that vessel unclean and therefore they would become ceremonially unclean. And so this woman, wondering aloud, saying, how could this Jewish man not only be talking with her, but, but that he'd be willing to take a vessel from my hand that I have used to drink from it himself? As you see, understood the culture, as did everyone else. So this encounter actually poses a big problem for Jesus, because he was not just considered to be any Jewish man, he was a Jewish holy man, a prophet, many felt. And so... This is an important consideration as we look here because John is revealing to, and a reader from closer to John's time would understand this, that this was a significant problem in the story. And you know, as I was studying this passage, I was asking myself, and I, and I do this a lot, what was John's purpose for giving us this particular story? And why did he put it here in his gospel? We know that from John chapter 20, verse 30, he wrote this entire gospel in order to bring evidence to convince the reader that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And certainly we see those elements here in the story. And John does that by identifying seven particular signs, seven particular miracles throughout his gospel. The first sign or the first miracle was back in John chapter 2. You remember that one? He's at a wedding. 
They run out of alcohol. They run out of wine. Again, it's a diluted form, but they ran out. And so his mother comes to him and he turns the water into wine. And John says, this is the first sign. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And then in John chapter 4, John tells us a second sign that Jesus performs. He heals a nobleman's son. And what's interesting then is you have between those two miracles, which again, those are markers all through John's gospel to demonstrate who Jesus is. Between those two miracles, John tells us about two conversations at length. Tells us about two people that Jesus had an evangelistic encounter with. And, you know, as I thought about this, I said, you know, I'm sure Jesus had many interesting and engaging conversations evangelistically with people between the first miracle that happened in Cana and the second miracle that happened, in, I believe, in Capernaum. A lot took place between there. But John only tells us about these two particular conversations. Why? Well, I think it's involved and has to do with who he was talking with. Because if you compare these two conversations, who is the first conversation with in John chapter 3? A man named Nicodemus, right? And this man was no ordinary man. He was a Pharisee. And not only that, he was considered a leader. He was called a leader in the text. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was among the, the chief, the religious establishment there. And not only that, Jesus refers to him in John 3 as the teacher of Israel. And so this Nicodemus was probably the most prominent man among the religious elite in his day. Now the other conversation, the one we're going to look at here, was with a Samaritan woman. A person who, in the view of the Jewish religious establishment, would have two major strikes against her. The first is that she was a Samaritan. We've talked about the tension there. The second was that she was a woman. In fact, you can look and find many rabbinical texts which talk about the, the rabbis will say, don't teach a woman, they can't comprehend the law. Um, don't, don't spend time in conversation with a woman, especially if you're a rabbi. I mean, a very demeaning, misogynistic perspective that they had. And so this Samaritan woman had these two strikes against her in the view of that culture. And there was a third strike that we'll learn about later in the text, is that she was living with another man out of wedlock. And so in this culture, these two people are about as far apart as you can get in the social spectrum. You have the one, a learned, influential man from the religious establishment, and the other, an unknown, and notice she's never named in this text, an unknown, lowly, immoral Samaritan woman. You see, Jesus lived in a culture not unlike ours, a culture that was full of racism, Sexism, elitism, all the isms were part of this culture, just like for us today. But Jesus pursued everyone. Jesus pursued everyone. Any lost sheep, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, regardless of wealth, regardless of position, regardless of ability, regardless of age, all of these people, Jesus went after them. Jesus is the the hound of heaven, Spurgeon called him, going after all the lost sheep. And he did not care where a person fit in the social strata of the culture. Amen? And I think by John placing these two encounters next to one another, sandwiched between the first and second sign, I think John has a message for us in this. I think John has a message for us that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone, rich or poor, male or female, 
young or old, black or white, Jew or Gentile, American or Russian, African or Asian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, Hindu, those who live differently than us, those who think differently than us, even those who hate us. The gospel is for everyone. And we need to remember this, beloved, that people are not the enemy. They are the mission field. Jesus wants to make disciples of how many nations? All. Peter said this in Acts 10.34 when he was standing in the house of Cornelius the centurion, a place that he said was against the law, against the Jewish law for him to be. And he's sitting there, he's preaching the gospel, and he sees what happens. They come to Christ, and he says, Now I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Paul said something very interesting in Romans 1.14, you know, a, a letter focused on the gospel. He said this, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, this is a significant declaration on Paul's part. Not only because Paul, this man, was, was about as racist and, and elitist as anybody around before his conversion. So that this man, Paul, was actually going to the Gentiles... But Paul here says, I go to every Gentile. And here he names the Greeks and the barbarians. Again, those will be at the opposite ends of the social spectrum in that culture. The the Greeks were these learned academics, the refined culture, and they looked at everyone else who was non-Greek as barbarians, that that their speech was, you know, that I can't understand you. You're ignorant, was their attitude. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm going to both of them. I'm obligated to bring the gospel to the Greeks and to the barbarians. To the wise and to the foolish. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember this. The gospel is for everyone. And I think we know that intellectually, but I think at times there are certain people that we avoid or that we choose not to pray for or that we choose maybe not to share the gospel with. Because they are different. Because they are our enemy. And I think John is telling us social constructs and prejudices matter not. Take the gospel to all. James reminds us in the second chapter of his epistle not to show favoritism towards the rich. How much more so when it comes to the gospel? (laughs) How much more so when it comes to showing mercy to those in need? Because at the end of the day, all of us are in need. From the man on the street to the man on Wall Street. We all need Christ. Every person on this planet. And so, before we move further in the story, let's just remember Jesus' example here. He went to everyone. Everyone. Can I get an amen? Are you listening, saints? Let's get back to our story. Take a look at verse 10. Jesus responds to this woman's question. How can you, being a Jew, basically speak with me, talk with me, who is a Samaritan woman? Jesus says this. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice how quickly Jesus moves the conversation to spiritual matters. A lesson we can learn. And he does so in an ironic fashion. Because though Jesus was the one asking her for water to quench his physical thirst, in reality, it's the woman who needed the water Jesus had to quench her eternal thirst. And so Jesus tells her he has this living water. Now, in that time, that expression living water kind of had the idea of of water from an active spring or a river as opposed to still water within a pond or a cistern. And so she thought Jesus was claiming that he knew of an active water supply nearby. And so she says to him, sir, how, how could you provide such water when Jacob had to dig this deep well? And then she says, you can't be more skilled or wiser than Jacob, can you? And she wasn't really asking him a question. She was making a statement, perhaps being a little sarcastic here. And again, we have a situational irony, a second one. John loves irony. If you're reading his gospel, look for irony. It's everywhere. Here, he's, here he, he quotes the woman who asked the question, are you greater than Jacob? Now, in her mind, she's thinking, no way. But in reality, the one she's talking to is far greater than Jacob. Now, the water Jesus is speaking of here was not the you know, literal H2O, of course. He said he had a living water. And he's drawing upon something that God had said back in, through the prophet Jeremiah, I believe. Jeremiah 2.13 God said these words to his people, For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, listen, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Again, in Jeremiah 17, 13, he repeats this idea that that he is the fountain of living water. We see in Psalm 36, verse 8, it says that God's people drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. Again, this imagery that that God is a source of, of living water, a metaphor to describe that He provides not just what we need for physical life, but notice Jesus says here, I have water that brings eternal life. Now, the question might be, is, is Jesus referring to God? Is He referring to Himself? What's He talking about here? What, what is this living water that He's describing? Well, notice again verse 10. He says, He would have given you living water. Or look in verse 14. It says twice there, the water that I will give him. The water that I will give him. So this tells us that Jesus is not saying that the living water is something that he is. He's saying that the living water is something that he has. In John 3, chapter 5, in that conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, where he tells Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, right? Nicodemus says, huh? What? What are you talking about? But Jesus says this in verse 5, to enter the kingdom, one must be born of water and the Spirit. Jesus connects those two. Later in John chapter 7, in fact, turn here with me, just a few pages to the right. John chapter 7, he's at the Feast of tabernacles and again jesus refers there to living water in fact it's interesting at that feast during the end of the feast there was a special ceremony that would take place 
within the temple where they would actually pour out water as a sign of God giving and providing water while they were camping out in the desert in tents. And it is probably at that very moment that Jesus stands up in the temple area and declares these words. On the last day, verse 37 of John 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of, and here it is, living water. So Jesus says here, the one who believes in him will have this living water. And then John tells us in verse 39 exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Look there with me. But this living water, he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living water Jesus is speaking of here, as well as in John chapter four, is the Holy Spirit. Brings to mind imagery from many places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, 3 comes to mind where it says these words, I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Spirit was often described visually as as being poured out. And that's a representation of him doing a work. Now the spirit is not a substance, right? Oh, our theology is not very good here. All right. The spirit is not a substance, correct? Correct. He is not an it. He is a he. He's the third person of the Trinity. And so as, as he, the third person of the Trinity, is described as metaphorically being poured out upon a person, that person becomes changed. That person becomes transformed. That person is made alive. In fact, that's what John 663 says this it is the spirit who gives life it is the spirit who takes a a dead soul and resuscitates that soul to give life it is the spirit who brings spiritual rebirth it is the spirit who brings eternal life it is the spirit again who makes alive in fact notice what jesus said go back to john 4 John 4, verse 14. The water that I will give him, he says in verse 14, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He doesn't just say eternal life, but he adds this expression springing up. Now that was typically used of living things, and it described a a leaping, a, a bounding. And so Jesus is giving this picture. It's not just eternal life that is given, but that life is described as this abundant, fulfilling Vibrant, active, exciting life. Jesus is saying, if if you drink of the living water I have, he's not just saying you'll live forever, but he's describing the quality of that life. Just as Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they would know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Right? We have to always remember that and remind ourselves eternal life is not just meaning that I live forever. Or even that I live forever in heaven. That's not what Jesus and the apostles focused on. When they described eternal life, they're looking at the quality of that life. That it is in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That there is complete satisfaction, complete fulfillment, abundant joy. Despite what's going on around 
you. And so Jesus is saying, you want this water? You will have an abundant life. And again, he wasn't just looking at the temporary, but the eternal. This water is not just thirst quenching. It is satiating. It's fulfilling. Now, the Samaritan woman did not understand any of this, right? She's still stuck on that. Where, how is he going to get this water? What's he talking about? Right? She was just intrigued, though, of the prospect. Well, if he is telling the truth, you know, I have to lug this barrel up here every day. And it's kind of heavy. You know, if, he, if he's got a water source I don't know about, that if I just drink from once, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. Well, notice verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Again, she responds from a temporary physical perspective, saying, Sir, you know what? I'll take you up on this offer. Now, Jesus responds rather strangely. Look at verse 16. In response to her statement, he says, Go call your husband and come here. Huh? Well, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, let's stop there a minute. <clears throat> Don't you find his response a little bit odd? I mean, ask, after she asked Jesus for this living water, why didn't he just explain to her what he meant? That, well, you know, what I'm talking about here is the Spirit of God who gives life, and that you need the Spirit to do a work in your heart so that you would come to understand that I am the Messiah, that I bring salvation, and you put your faith in me. Why didn't he go that direction? Why does he all of a sudden take this unexpected turn and bring up her personal life? And actually, this is kind of intrusive and rude, isn't it? Knowing her past, what's the connection between verse 15 and verse 16? Well, this woman needed to see her need for that living water, didn't she? She didn't understand what he was talking about yet. And so Jesus, in his great wisdom, wants her to face the fact that she, like all of us, is a sinner in need of a Savior. She needed to understand there is a deep thirst inside of her, and she was seeking to quench this thirst for meaning, for fulfillment, for joy and happiness. She was trying to quench that thirst through men. rather than God himself. Now, before any of us look down on this woman, (laughs) we have to remember what Thomas Aquinas said. He said, People desperately search for the things only God can give them, but at the same time they are fleeing from him. We all do this. Like the people Jeremiah was speaking to, we all turn away from the living water to find, try to find satisfaction in cisterns that don't even hold water. They're broken. Cisterns of sex or drugs, food, entertainment, alcohol, relationships, success, money, hobbies, all of these things we try to find fulfillment. Just like this poor woman. And again, Jesus may at first seem rather rude and insensitive. He's going to delve into a very personal part of her life. But actually, he was showing her great love. Because she didn't understand her need. He wanted her to see her real need. And again, we learn an important lesson from Jesus in evangelism here. 
The first is move the conversation to the things that really matter, spiritual things. But secondly, notice here, Jesus brings up her sin, doesn't he? Because for a person to genuinely embrace the salvation that Jesus offers, he or she has to first see their need for it. You know, so often when sharing the gospel, people just jump to the blessings. They jump to the benefits. You want to go to heaven? That's often how we open a gospel conversation. Now think about that. Is that really a God-centered approach or a man-centered approach? Certainly heaven is a part of the deal. And certainly it's a wonderful part of the deal. But is that really the main issue? What are we catering to? When we begin a conversation there, right? That's a sales pitch. Brothers and sisters, sin must be seen before the Savior can be savored. That sounds kind of like a John Piper thing, doesn't it? But it's true. Sin must be seen before the Savior can be savored or valued or appreciated. Before the healing balm of forgiveness can be applied, people have to see the wound, and they have to see how serious that wound is. Otherwise, the cross makes no sense. Otherwise, the cross has little value, because if it's just about me going to heaven and receiving all these wonderful blessings that God has to give, what's the point of the cross? So, beloved, when proclaiming the gospel, remember to tell them, about God's wrath against sin, and that wrath must be appeased. Sin must be paid for. Remember to tell them that sin or that sin does need to be paid for because there's a just and holy and right and good God who we have sinned against. When preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, we have to remember to tell that person to be saved, to receive this living water that Jesus is talking about. A person needs to desire to turn from that sin to follow Christ. They need to confess it. Again, if, if you have not helped a person to see that they are a sinner, then you have not yet shared the gospel. Yes, the gospel is good news. But it follows some bad news or some reality. Right? The good news is not that I go to heaven. The good news is not that I can live forever. The good news is I can be reconciled to God. The good news is I can be forgiven. The good news is is that I can have fellowship with God. The good news is that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, has made a way for me to now experience life with God. Something that was impossible and could not happen without the cross. That is the gospel we must preach. That is the gospel we need to preach. Now, going back to to John 4, the conversation takes yet another interesting turn. It's a fascinating discussion, actually. And how the woman responds when Jesus points out the situation that she is living in sin. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, right? No kidding. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men Ought to worship. Now, before we go on, does that seem like a dodge? It could be. Or it could be that she now realizes this guy has some insight. 
And, you know, there's just been long-standing tension and issue between the Jews and Gentiles about where to worship. Maybe he has some insight. Maybe she might just be curious. Or maybe she has come to realize when Jesus mentioned the fact that he knew about her personal life, maybe she had a twinge in her heart. And maybe she's, in effect, asking, where, where should I go to church? Where, where do I go to worship God? You know, John doesn't tell us explicitly why she does this. So I've heard many sermons where they talk about she's trying to change the subject, and we just don't know for sure. But you know what? This was exactly the right issue to bring up at this point. This was exactly the right issue that that she needed to hear what Jesus had to say. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem where, we worship, where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. Now, time does not permit us to go through all that Jesus says here. And again, the history behind Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans have put their temple. And of course, the temple in Jerusalem. I would highly recommend, there's an excellent treatment John MacArthur did on this passage. It's called True Worship. You can find it online or uh, it's also in book form. And he goes into much detail, very helpful. But in response to her question, Jesus essentially tells her this. She's missing the point. It's not where we worship God that matters, but how. I said another way, the issue is not the place that we approach God. It is the way we approach him. And the worship that Jesus is talking about here is not an event. It's a way of life. We see this from the word Jesus uses for worship. It's a Greek term, proskuneo. It means to kiss toward Literally, is the idea. And the, and the idea is in the ancient Near East, when you would approach a ruler, you would bow before that ruler and you would kiss either their foot or the hem of their garment as a sign of respect, as a sign of reverence, a sign of submission even. Brings to mind Psalm 2, verse 11, where it says there, Worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son. In the Hebrew there is literally, kiss the Son. And so this word conveys this attitude of humble reverence, a a reverence that manifests itself in a life of obedient service. Just like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What Paul is describing there is, again, not an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's not something that's only done in the church. It's not something that's only done when we're singing. Worship is not just something that's taking place in prayer. Worship isn't just as you read your Bible. Those are particular events. What, what this word and this idea and this concept is talking about is a way of life, which would include those events on an ongoing basis. Worship is not confined to a time or a place because God is not confined to a time or a place. Notice Jesus says here, God is Spirit, he's speaking of God's essence, of his being, that he's not confined to a particular location. He's not confined to a body. God is, by his own essence and nature, everywhere. 
He's omnipresent. And so must our worship be. Our reverent service to Him should be done everywhere, all the time. And notice Jesus says here, that true worship, that genuine worship is to be done in spirit and truth. Now those two words should be connected together, not separately. Worship in spirit and truth, combined. The idea here is that it refers to a, again, genuine worship comes from the heart. Complete harmony with understanding what is true about God. Theologian Leon Morris said this, Since God is spirit, the worship brought to him must be essentially of a spiritual kind. Unquote. Again, true worship is not defined or described only by an outward activity, but by an inward disposition, was what Jesus is talking about here. And so we have to stop here for a moment and ask this question. Am I a true worshiper? Are you a true worshiper? Can your life be described as an ongoing expression of service to God and love for Him from the heart? Is there a continuous pursuit of of knowing God, of seeking God through His Word so that you might worship Him in truth? Have you kissed the Son, bowed in reverence to Him as Lord? Is your life a picture of ongoing submission to His Lordship. Again, remember what Paul said. To become a believer, first we must confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart God raised Him from the dead. Is your faith real? Is your life typified by a consistent commitment to follow Him? These are important questions. These are important questions. You know, John 3.36 said this, the verse right before this story by the way, says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're told there exactly, what does the life of a true worshiper look like? Consistent pursuit of holiness. Again, not perfection that comes in glory, but pursuit. Pursuit. And this story in John 4 shows us another attribute of the true worshiper. And here we're moving now towards the main point of the story. It shows that a true worshiper also wants others to become true worshipers. Look at verse 27. Right after Jesus tells this woman that that he's the Messiah, verse 27 says this. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed. There's that word, shocked, astonished that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Now the story could have ended nicely right there. Right? This Jesus meets this woman. She comes to realize that, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And in joy and excitement, she, she runs back. She goes back to her village to tell the people there who she had met, and and they're interested. And so they're coming out to see Jesus. And not only that, the disciples have the pizza that they brought back. What a story, right? But here's where, again, we need to ask ourselves, what is the point of this account? Why did John choose to write it? Certainly we can see the contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and some principles there, but but what was the purpose for telling us this story? How does it fit within his gospel? 
Again, through the passage, we see clear demonstration of Jesus as the Messiah, and we see demonstration of his deity here as well. But in this particular story, there's something more that John wants us to see. And it's connected to the problem I mentioned at the very beginning of the story. The problem of this Jewish holy man engaged with in conversation with a Samaritan woman. And what the culture would have thought about that. And again, notice verse 27. The disciples were shocked when they saw this going on. And then John brings up these two questions. And don't overlook these. I think they're important to the point of the story. Notice he brings these two questions that the disciples did not ask out loud. Right? The questions are, what do you seek and why do you speak with her? Now John brings these up because, again, I think they're directly connected to the point of the story. I'll show why in a minute. Hold that thought. Let's look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat. Did he? Huh? I mean, you get this all the time, right? Jesus is trying to move to eternal matters, and people are just like, what? Anyway, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four, yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." John shifts the conversation here, or our attention, I mean, to the conversation that took place. Right? He, he has, he's in the discussion with the Samaritan woman. She leaves as the disciples arrive. She goes back to the town, and she's telling them of who she had met. And the disciples show up, and they're just, Jesus, here, have a slice of pepperoni. Aren't you hungry? Eat something. And then rather than take the food, Jesus says, my, my food is to do the will of him who, and don't miss this, the will of him who what? Sent me. Consider that word sent. It's significant in this story. It's actually very significant in the Gospel of John. Jesus often referred to the one who had sent him or that he had been sent. Why was it that Jesus had to go through Samaria? And what's the significance of Jesus' statement that the Father seeks, actively looks for true worshipers? Verse 23. And why would John say the disciples did not ask him, what do you seek? Same word. And then John records Jesus saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. These statements are linked together. John is weaving a particular thought through this story, one that reveals its true purpose, and it all culminates in Jesus' declaration to his disciples in verse 34. Look there with me. He says, I've been sent here on a mission, basically. I have a task that the Father has given me to complete. We have to go to Samaria because the Father seeks true worshipers, and he sent me to find them. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, I've been sent on a mission And I sent you. Did you see that? Jesus emphasizes this point through a very interesting and meaningful metaphor, agricultural metaphor. Right? Notice he's there in verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months remaining until the harvest? 
And he wasn't quoting a proverb here. I think it was actually four months until the harvest was going to take place in that particular location. And so they're basically saying in four months, these grain fields will be ready for harvest. But he's saying, don't, don't tell me the harvest is four months away because behold, look, lift up your eyes. The fields are white with harvest now. What's he talking about here? He wasn't speaking of the grain fields. They were just sprouting up. Why does he tell them to lift up their eyes? And I think he was literally telling them, look your heads up and look. Because remember, what was happening at this moment? Verse 30. Again, notice details. The narrator tells us stuff we need to pay attention to. Verse 30. What does he say is happening as the disciples and Jesus are having this conversation? The people from Sukkar, who the woman went to tell about the Jesus, they were interested. They're coming up the road. Dressed in their ancient Near Eastern garb, a white or off-white clothing. And so when Jesus says, men, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white with harvest. What was he talking about? Look at the Samaritan souls coming up the road. There's our harvest. And I sent you for people like that. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. And that's why John gave us this story. Brothers and sisters, we see here in this story the seeds of the Great Commission. Jesus was sent on a mission to harvest lost souls. And we are sent on the same mission. Lift up your eyes and see the field of souls around you. Lift up your eyes and see the thirst that all men and all women and all boys and all girls have. A thirst that many do not even realize, let alone know how to quench. Lift up your eyes and see their need to hear the gospel so that the Spirit, the the living water, would come upon them and transform them. Give them faith that they might respond to that gospel. And again, Brothers and sisters, remember, this gospel is to be taken everywhere and to everyone, just like Jesus shows us here. We must go to the lowly and to the leader, to the marginalized and the established, to the deaf and blind, to the poor, to those who are disabled and those who are abled, to those in prison, to those considering abortion. To those who have been oppressed and to those who have oppressed. To those caught up in heterosexual sin, to those caught up in homosexual sin. To the humble and to the haughty, to the famous and to the infamous. To those we like and those we dislike. To those who are caught up in some other religion and those without religion. You get the point, don't you? That's the message of this story. You know, some years ago, I was walking over to our neighbor's house, our closest friends, and as I knocked on the door, there's a man came up behind me with a gun. Turn around, and it's pointed right at my head. And he says, get in, because the door was just opening. So I go into the house. My friends are there. They have a little boy. Um... uh, my friend and his wife, their little son, and the guy says, get on the floor. 
So I fell on this kid, right, um, try to, to, to cover him, and the man's wanting money. And it looks like he's strung out on drugs because he's very nervous, shaky, his eyes bloodshot. And so he's demanding money from us. Well, I was a graduate student. My friends were just out of school. We didn't have any money. So we're all like looking in our pockets, so opening wallets, literally no cash in the house. And this guy is starting to get agitated. I think he just wanted to score another fix, so he just wanted cash immediately. And, and he's shaking this gun around, and we're getting incredibly nervous. So my friend, right, this is his family that his gun is waving around at. He says, look, look I can get you some money at the, at the ATM because he just wanted to get the guy out of there. So the guy points the gun at him and says, okay, let's go. So he kidnaps my friend. I didn't tell you this. His wife was nine months pregnant. I mean, she was ready. She actually gave birth the next day, I think, right? So my friend's taken out. They get in the car. They take off. His wife is about ready to have a nervous breakdown. So we call the police, of course, and... Well, he, 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 he gets back and sometime later. And um, we asked him what happened. He said, well, it's, <laughs> if we're driving in the car, I'm driving. The man's got the gun to my head. He's very agitated. And then my friend said this. He said, look, to this guy, look, I, I'm ready to die. I know where I'm going. What about you? This guy's got a little boy, pregnant wife. They've only been married a few years. He's got a gun pointed to his head. What would you be thinking about? This man's soul? I have to be honest. I don't know if I would have gone there. My friend did. Because he knew he's been sent on a mission. And if anything was obvious about this young man, it's that he had a thirst that he was trying to quench. But it wasn't Jesus. He needed Christ. Well, a man just was telling him to shut up and, you know, keep driving. And um, he wasn't really interested in hearing. But my friend continued on, shared the gospel with him. While he was kidnapped, not knowing if his life would be taken. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was sent on a mission. He sent us on a mission. Are you actively engaged in that mission? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, so much to this quite amazing story. A story that really took place with a woman who had such great need and the love of a Savior to help her see that need and to provide for her and for all of us who would put our trust in you to provide a way to be forgiven. Oh, Lord, thank you for this story. It teaches us so much. Most importantly, teaches us about the mission for which our Lord had been sent and the mission for which he has sent us on. And in this day that we... Lord, celebrate and gather together to, to see the work being done through the many missionaries who are here. I thank you for these missionaries. I thank you for the fact that they have heard the call for you to 
from you for them to go on mission, whether here or abroad. Lord, I pray that that same heart would instill all of us to see that the most important need of everyone on this planet is you and to be reconciled. Oh, Lord, fill our hearts with not only gratitude for the fact that you have come to us, but, Lord, also the honor and privilege to be able to take your message to others. Oh, Lord, do a work in this church. Do a work in all the churches that are represented here by the people that are here, many who have visited from other places. And Lord, we thank you for the honor to be your ambassadors. Lord, may we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.